Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and law-abiding taxpayers to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at Blaze Media in our Northern Command Center here in Central Maryland today on Monday, January 6th. Almost feels like it's New Year's just because everyone's going back to work. But it's our first full week here. Your one and only full service, independent conservative talk show. And I stress the word independent. We are independent of any individual, any influence. We just want the truth from a constitutional conservative perspective, something that you will unfortunately not get elsewhere. So make sure to subscribe to our videos at our YouTube page, Conservative Review's YouTube page, um, as well as our articles at conservativereview.com. Email me, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Follow me on Twitter at rmconservative. And no, I don't do Facebook. I just can't deal with that. Um, You know, if nothing else, I'm in a better mood just from the fact that we are actually debating something of substance in this country. For once, we're finally debating real substance. Now, what is spawning that debate is the wrong thing. The worst thing to spawn the debate is coming from a very insincere place with these members of Congress suddenly caring about our mission overseas. But nonetheless, I think we have a perfect opportunity to embrace it and say, you want a debate? I'll give you a debate. Let's finally debate what it is that affects us in the Middle East, what doesn't, what we should and shouldn't be doing, and orient our policies and, by extension, the pocketbook, our funding, based on that. And we will come out, if we have a proper debate, that we shouldn't be doing most of what we're doing in the Middle East. What we should be doing is defending our shipping lanes and other aggression against definitive assets that we have. And everything else should be oriented towards homeland security, the border, and really a more prudent immigration policy. That really is our work here for this week. That's our work here this year. We have a president who intuitively, instinctively, is very good on these issues. Um, You know, I've criticized him a lot for not fulfilling certain promises on immigration, for not only not fulfilling his promises to be a tough on crime president, but actually signing a jailbreak bill. But when it comes to foreign policy, I think this has been documented in all of the books um, that have been written on the Trump administration universally, that Trump cannot stand us being taken for a ride by the Afghani government, the Baghdadi government. Um, Even just over the weekend, if you look at the president on Twitter, it's very clear he's had enough of this Baghdadi government. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for us to not just, you know, defend the president from, uh, you know, the pro Soleimani Democrats and stuff like that. We'll talk about that, but also to give a definitive vision, as we've been talking about the last couple of days, as to what we should be doing. And look, it's kind of like the Khashoggi thing where the Democrats were like, hey, what are we doing with Yemen and Saudi Arabia? Khashoggi, they killed Khashoggi. Now, it was the wrong reason, because Khashoggi was nothing but a terrorist sympathizer that should never have been given a visa to live in this country. 
and he wasn't in our interest, and certainly wasn't in our interest to side with Turkey in that fight. But nonetheless, all right, you want to have a debate over you know, what we're doing overseas? Well, let's have that debate. Let's have that debate. This is our opportunity. Hopefully, if we have time today, we're going to discuss enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, the president and really every official, federal official, um, has to take an oath to the Constitution. It's in Article 6 of the Constitution. And the specific text of that oath that is on the books today is set by statute. It's actually 5 U.S.C. Um, 3331. It was passed in 1868 after the Civil War. This uh, language of defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We have foreign enemies that we have to define which ones affect us, how they affect us, how do we combat that, and then domestic. Immigration, you know, MS-13, things like that, which really are foreign, but we've made domestic. And then the craziness with domestic crime, for the first time in a generation, going up again. And we have both political parties that are bought into the notion that we are being too tough on crime, that we're locking up too many people. So let's put this all together. So over the weekend, we had the Iraqi parliament went and voted to expel U.S. troops from the country of Iraq, which really is a non-existent country. It only existed for a very short period in history, if you think about it, really from what the 30s, 40s on to uh, you know, when Saddam Hussein was removed. Historically, it was fractured along tribal lines. There was no country of Iraq that included the Kurds, the Shiites, the Sunnis. It was never meant to be. It took a guy like Saddam Hussein to put that together. And once we got rid of him, well, then we decided to own it. Now, imagine if someone were to tell you, you know, I don't want you spending trillions of dollars on me, losing thousands of lives over me, and bringing in hundreds of thousands of our immigrants to your country. Well, you know what? I'll take yes for an answer. As we've noted the last couple of shows, my support for Trump's strike on Soleimani is not against my view that we need to pull out broadly from the land-based battles there. It works in concert with it because it's moving towards the philosophy of strike and maneuver as opposed to hold and build. That rather than getting involved in your civil wars and in fact protecting the Iraqi government from the Sunni insurgency, from ISIS, we're going to go ahead and we're just going to strike and maneuver very cheap. We're not going to lose any lives over it. We're not going to supply you with infrastructure and electricity and water and build up your country. We're not going to provide security for you. Just the cost of that missile, we're going to blow up things that affect us. Whether it's land, air, or sea, but mainly, like I said, focus on our naval and air assets to keep the shipping lanes clear, to deter long-term threats of belligerence from Iran, and that's it. I've been remarkably consistent on this throughout administrations. I've been saying this for years, that the Sunnis didn't affect us. It is remarkable to watch members of Congress say, you know, finally, finally, the president does something in Iraq that actually is worthwhile and accomplishes something tangibly and doesn't cost us anything. And they're like, what's your authorization? 
Let me tell you something about authorization. Here's something nobody is mentioning. So there's a lot of debate over the fact that um, we had authorizations of use of force in Afghanistan in 2001, in Iraq in 2003, and we've just been working on autopilot since then, not debating anything new, not reauthorizing it. You know, the fact that it's very tenuous to say that the 2003 authorization should apply today. And I agree with all that. I'm the one who's been calling for uh, a, a new debate on authorization of use of force and, and defining the parameters of what affects us, what doesn't, what sort of input we should put in, what we shouldn't, and then define the dollars and cents. But all this time when we're doing protecting the Baghdadi allies from the Sunni insurgency, ISIS, um, building up the Afghani security forces, pumping tens of billions of dollars into that while they blow us up, meaning we get killed by the Sunnis while protecting the Shiites, while the Shiites, backed by Soleimani, were killing us while we were protecting them. No one ever asked any questions. Suddenly, he kills the one guy who really is an enemy, and they have questions. That's how perverted these Democrats in Congress are. But what no one is telling you is that every year, Congress passes something called the National Defense Authorization Act where they authorize our defense programs and our overseas contingency operations. In addition, every year, concurrent with that, they pass an appropriation bill, a defense appropriation bill, funding the money for the authority of those programs and missions. So this notion that somehow we're like doing all this stuff overseas without congressional authorization is bunk because Every year they authorize it, meaning let's say let's say Congress doesn't declare war. OK, they don't officially do it. But and, and the president goes and does stuff unilaterally. But then Congress comes every year and says, hey, you know, in that Iraqi stuff, uh, here's some authorization. Here's some funding. Well, that is authorizing it. Much to my chagrin, I was the one. And, and you guys know this veterans of this program. Every year when nobody even knows this is coming up, I focus on the NDAA and I say, here's what we should be doing. Let's finally have a debate over what we are doing there, not how much money we want to fund there. That's what an appropriation bill is. Authorization is to discuss the policies, not the funding. But, you know, it fell on deaf ears. And every year these bills pass with overwhelming bipartisan support. So all these people sign off on it. Don't tell me, oh, I want congressional buy-in. Well, you had your opportunity and you blew it. You gave the president, whether it was Bush, whether it was Obama, whether it was Trump, a blank check without any understanding of what we're doing there. So let's just lay down the, the marker here that that right away this notion that somehow Trump is not authorized to defend our personnel there you know, as if as if he's going to Madagascar or something like he just like decided to open up a new theater. No, I mean, this is part and parcel of Congress just funded. Three weeks ago, I mean, we spent much, much of December talking about the NDAA. That was the other thirty four hundred page bill that nobody read. Well, I read a lot of it, not all of it, but I read a lot of it. And, you know, we funded 
overseas contingency operations to the tune of $71.5 billion. We do this every year, and it gives the president broad, very vague general terms to do what he wants. They all signed off on this. The Senate passed the bill 86 to 8. Chuck Schumer, who was talking about, oh, where's your authorization? He voted for it. The House passed it 377 to 48. Most overwhelmingly, you know, 80% of the Democrats voted for it. And we pumped several billion dollars more into Afghani military and government, the Baghdadi military and government. So let's go through some of what we have there. Let's see what we got here. Page 1069 of the conference report categorically authorizes DOD to, quote, provide support for the stabilization activities of other federal agencies in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Now, again, I've been yelping for years. We need to define that. Well, who are we protecting? We're we're stabilizing a pro-Iran government to protect them from ISIS. And this is the whole thing. This is what I've argued about. ISIS has become a punchline. Oh, ISIS, ISIS is coming. We have to do everything. So Congress the last five years has pumped in over $10 billion to fight ISIS. Anyone who wants to fight ISIS, come fight ISIS. Well, who's anybody? How does ISIS affect us? Iran is is the bigger threat. And we're now saying we're going to protect Iran and their proxies for free from, from ISIS. And again, ISIS is not ISIS. It, it, it was originally Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's the perpetual ongoing Sunni insurgency that they're always going to have there. And we're always going to be on the hook for it if we make ourselves on the hook for it. So anyway, they just authorized that. Page 1087 of the bill. It authorized DOD to reimburse those governments. Not only are we building them up and spending our money on them, but to reimburse them if they for for logistical and military support provided by the nation to or in connection with the United States military operations in Afghanistan, Iraq or Syria. On page 1100, it provides authority for, quote, defending the Syrian people from attacks by ISIS. Well, what does that mean? Defending Hezbollah? Literally, we we codified defending Soleimani's dudes from from ISIS Two, securing territory formerly controlled by ISIS. Three, protecting the United States and its partners and allies from the threats posed by the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, Al Qaeda and associated forces in Syria. So, you know, anyone who wants to tell you there's been no authorization, there's authorization every year. They just did it three weeks ago. The bill contained the authorization bill at $845 million for the Iraqi government, $4.5 billion for the Afghani government, or the Afghan government. I think it, I don't think there's an I there. I think that's how you say the Afghan government. Then they passed a separate defense appropriation bill. That was one of the omnibus bills, which nobody read. And that allocated $1.2 billion for counter ISIS operations in Iraq. They just signed off on protecting Iran. I mean, that's what it is. Let, let's let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this. Well, let's first read um you know what this includes. 
But um, let's see where this is here. It's page 139. This is not the NDAA. This is the appropriation bill omnibus. Counter ISIS train and equip fund. Almost 1.2 billion. Such funds shall be available to the Secretary of Defense in coordination with the Secretary of State to provide assistance, including training, equipment, logistics support, supplies, and services, stipends, infrastructure repair and renovation, construction for facility fortification, and humane treatment and sustainment to foreign security forces, irregular forces, groups or individuals participating or preparing to participate in activities to counter the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria and their affiliated or associated groups. In other words, the Iraqi Shiite militias that sacked our embassy directed by Soleimani. And we're going to put up on the screen here pictures of Iraqi militias, the Hezbollah brigades that sacked our embassy that were flying Hezbollah flags on our M1 Abrams tanks. We gave them weapons. It's still in the bill. They just passed it. They just passed it. I mean, I mean this, is, this is unbelievable. Don't give me this garbage that, oh, I didn't authorize it. You did worse than that. You authorized fighting for on behalf of Iran. It goes on. That these funds be used in such amounts as the Secretary of Defense may determine. I mean, look how wide open it is to enhance the border security of nations. Talk about border security. No border security for us is in this bill. No cutting off visas to these countries. In fact, it invited in more. Another 4,000 from Afghanistan and continued the Iraqi special immigrant visa program. Nothing about the Saudi military training on our bases. Nothing about arming our troops on bases. And in fact, maybe we'll get to it later. Bases are getting even more strict against our soldiers being armed on bases. But anyway, to enhance border security of nations adjacent to conflict areas, including Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, and Tunisia. Tunisia from ISIS. So, I mean... Don't tell me, oh, we never authorized. You authorized all of this. I mean, we've authorized act military activities in Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, Tunisia, um, obviously Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia, among others. Um, it's uh, security missions to counter Islamic State. Let's see what else. I mean, it, it goes on and on. They just voted for this. So to me, my criticism of our operations there is in concert with this, that I think the president needs to move on to countering Iran, but not that we need to do the opposite, that we need to arm the Sunnis to fight the Shiite militias in Iran. No, don't get involved in the proxy wars and whatever. Get out of there. So now we don't have to worry about Iran retaliating against us and we could take a clean shot at them. And when I say a clean shot, I don't mean, again, doing... In Iran, what we did with Saddam Hussein, you know, going in there. No, I just mean if they screw with us in the Persian Gulf, which that is important, we could just strike them and break their stuff, kill their people and not do anything. We're not going to own their land. And that's it. We could deter them from a position of strength. It's that simple. That's what needs to happen there. But I find it unbelievable that the very same people. Pushing the president, are the ones who just gave him a blank check for stupid things. This is what it means to have no strategic vision. But this is not what they're going to do. This is not the involvement. 
the involvement is they want to focus on the absolute wrong issue. Adam Schiff wants to hold hearings in the House uh, Intel Committee on, uh, on the decision to take out Soleimani. So they had no problem fighting for Iran. I mean, do you understand what happened? We have spent years, we have, we have dumped, by my estimate, I mean, it's several trillion dollars, the I- Iraqi war and, and the tens of thousands injured, oh, 5,000 killed. Um, plus, we brought in 200,000, over 200,000, 230,000 refugees from there, equally divided among Sunnis and Shiites so they could fight in our neighborhoods. Unbelievable. But, you know, we have dumped in about $35 billion into the Iraqi military a.k.a. the Shiite-backed and influenced militias. We've been giving money to Soleimani. He may as well just give it into his his pockets. All of that, they never had a problem with. Suddenly, we take out Soleimani, they had problems with. So I guess the House, when they convene today, they'll uh, open with a moment of silence for him. And this is what's unbelievable. Nobody had an issue when Trump took out Baghdadi. I'm not saying I'm opposed to it. I'm happy. I'm just saying the ISIS leader, truly, he didn't affect us. As gruesome as he was, strategically, it was, you know, it's the Syrian civil war. They don't have a global Hezbollah network like Iran does. They're not stopping us in the Straits of Hormuz and the Straits of Aden. They haven't. I mean, until we got involved with them, they didn't affect us like Iran with, you know, the Beirut and the Kobar Towers and and killing hundreds of our troops. I mean, could you imagine? For years, this is what happened there. We were bailing. We were while we were. Remember the Anbar province, the Sunni insurgency, the Sunni triangle, Ramadi and Tikrit and Fallujah. We were losing people left and right fighting the the Sunnis for Iran. And while we were doing it, Soleimani was going around planting these um, EFPs, the the really uh, high-tech ordinances, explosives, that just ripped apart hundreds of our soldiers. Really thousands. I mean, it killed, um, by the State Department's estimate, over 600. Injured who knows how many. Really nasty stuff they put in there. Finally, we take out that guy. Oh, where's your authorization? But they never had problems with us bleeding and fighting for and giving billions, tens of billions of dollars to the very governments and entities that did this to us. So when the Iraqi government votes to expel us, now I wouldn't leave like as if we're servile puppies. You know, I would do it on our timetable, not on theirs. So we don't look weak, but I say, go, go eat it, buddy. So this leads us to the next thing before we move on to domestic issues. You know, so so we took care of the hypocrisy of the Democrats. Now, you know, some of the more like traditional Republican foreign policy people will be like, oh, no, 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 Daniel, we need to stay in Iraq to counter Iran. If we pull out, we're going to make Iran strong. Iran's going to take over Iraq. Think how stupid that is. Iran already controls Iraq. We gave it to them. Right now is the worst of all worlds. They control it, albeit, A, we're propping up their government. We're giving them money. Plus, we are 
fighting the Sunni insurgency for them. If we pulled out, yeah, temporarily they might fill more of a vacuum, but in the long run, guess what? Now they have to face the Sunni insurgency without us. And believe me, that's perpetually going to be there because measure per measure, the stronger they go and grip Baghdad and control the central government, the Iranians that is, commensurate with that is going to be the blowback from the Sunnis. They're going to own that. Right now, we're sticking our necks out between both of them. We're helping Iran defeat the Sunnis while both of them are shooting at us. I mean, that I've been yelping about this for years on this show. I've written hundreds of articles on this. Columns, articles, and no one cared. Suddenly, oh, Soleimani died. Somehow now there's a problem. Again, you cannot get a more perverse government than the one we have today. Heck, they should go over to Baghdad, join them there. They're, they're good for each other. So that's with that. We're going to keep watching. And I, I just want to say one more thing on this. I mentioned before that, you know, that stupid NDAA, it contained everything except for real national security. It contained border security for nations in the Middle East. It contained 4,000 more visas from Afghanistan. It contained billions of dollars for the mythical phantom enemy governments and militaries in Kabul and Baghdad. It contained the provision giving um, a new federal entitlement of paid family leave, not just to the military, but all federal workers. It contained a provision barring federal agencies from asking criminal records of prospective you know, applicants for federal taxpayer-funded jobs as another handout, the Second Step Act to uh, criminals. It contained an amnesty for f- at least 4,000 Liberian illegal aliens. Again, all the antithesis of national defense, bringing problematic people here and nothing to address Pensacola, nothing to address our border in the cartels. That is what a real new defense authorization would include. I am calling on them, on Trump, to call on Congress to repeal the NDAA and start over. And start over with a foundation built on homeland security. Cutting off visas from these areas. Deploying our, our military not primarily overseas, although we're always going to have a robust naval presence, Air Force, we have our bases. I'm not talking about getting rid of that. That's It costs money, but the massive toll are the land-based occupations and nation-building. That's where you get the trillions of dollars. That's where you get our soldiers being killed because they're not on an offensive posture, but they're not behind defensive lines. They're kind of scattered out, per- precariously flung out. Um, in all these areas, helping the people who, who bite our hand, the infrastructure, the VA costs, because they're all injured, that, that's, that's the real cost. It's not an all-or-nothing proposition. We don't have to pull every last thing out of the Middle East. It's a realignment to our interests. But I just want to mention one thing. Not only have we not armed our soldiers on bases, this is from the military.com. This was um, over the break. December 30th, Air Force Base announces new restrictions on personal weapons. Beginning on January 2nd, airmen of the Offutt Air Force Base in Nebraska will no longer be able to carry 
their personal firearms on, on a base, even if they lock them up in their cars first. Colonel Gavin Marks, commander of the Office 55th uh, Wing, issued the change, which the base announced in a Facebook post. Current policy, which authorizes registered DOD ID card holders with a Nebraska concealed handgun license and holders of reciprocating state concealed carry licenses to transport and secure privately owned handguns and privately owned vehicles within the base will no longer be valid. So this is not even about carrying. They weren't allowed to carry, just keeping their car. Now, you might say, well, this is some guy in Nebraska. But no, it's not Nebraska. It's a federal facility in Nebraska. Who controls the federal government? The commander-in-chief. Trump needs to fulfill his promise, which he said from day one, he will end the gun-free zone business on their bases. You would think Pensacola would have done that. This is a real disgrace to our military. So there's that. And then we have domestic. We have more, more border problems. Another U.S. citizen was killed, a 13-year-old boy of a family um, from Oklahoma. Now, they say that they were permanent residents, so I'm assuming they weren't illegal immigrants. Um, permanent residents, and the, the son was a U.S. citizen. I guess he was born here. Um, they were traveling in Tamaulipas, where you have the big war between the Gulf and the Zetas, and they were killed by one of the cartels. So again, just underscoring that our border is, the, is where we need our military. Again, this isn't to say we, can't, we don't have ample assets with our Navy and our Air Force to take care of deterring Iran. Right? I don't want to hear this false dichotomy of, oh, we can't be there because we have to be at our border. I'm certainly the biggest advocate of being at our border. It's, it's, it's both, as long as we're not refereeing the land-based civil wars. So that's with that. Then we have domestic. You know, kind of to transpose from Iran to this, you know what's interesting? Uh, the New York uh, mayor, Bill de Blasio, he said that he, he put the NYPD on high alert because he's worried about Iran in some way retaliating against New York. Now, first of all, just as an aside, well, how does Iran retaliate against New York? What, they're going to send a missile to New York? No, they're going to send a, their navy to attack uh, the Hudson, they're going to send an air force here. No, it means one of their operatives, which will likely be a Lebanese Hezbollah Unit 910 guy, who was let in through immigration policies supported by Bill de Blasio and his friends that will attack us. So that's where that threat is. But what I found ironic, I said to myself, as much as I'm a national security hawk on external threats, the threat of New York City from domestic criminals, the streets of New York City from domestic criminals in light of the jailbreak and from MS-13 and criminal aliens as a result of the sanctuary policies is a much bigger threat to be on high alert than Iran. That's the truth. As much as I am worried about Iran, um, that's the bigger issue. So you have the first full week of implementation of New York's jailbreak law and I could just tell you, it's endless, endless stories. I have an article out today we'll link to in show notes. People that were murderers. See, the game they play is they say that 
if you're arrested for murder one, okay, you know, first degree murder, you're not going to be released, um, you know, without bail. Now, first of all, murder two, you are released, and there's a bunch of them we ha- we've had. Remember, like a lot of times you have the worst murderers. They're only charged on murder two. It takes a while to get murder one charges, if ever. Um, they're released. All the drug traffickers are released. There's a lot of articles out now how New York is, is going to experience a massive drug problem. Um, there you go. Firearms, felons, the same people who, you know, claim to be for gun control. Of course, they let out gun felons. And but but you even have people with prior. See, what what what, what they don't realize is the way they crafted this law is it's not just um, you can't just look at what the guy committed then. Part of the reason why we actualized a 25 year or so 20 20 to 25 year decline in crime is because most of the people committing the crimes are repeat offenders and when we take them off the streets so when you take off people you know murderers off the streets through gun and drug laws well it's not so much an issue of the drugs it's that you took away the murders hence the 60 percent decline in homicide uh since the 90s so they're reversing all of that now. You had this guy in Rochester that that um, shot a police officer in the back of the head in 2009. He got it. He only served seven years, of course. No one, no one ever serves a long time. Back on the streets in 2016. And then and, and now he had a, he had a serious criminal, criminal record, robberies, this and that. So now he was picked up on two fentanyl charges. I mean, fentanyl, this is what's killing everyone. But in addition, he's a murderer. Okay? Like, he's a really bad dude. So in the past, the way we prevented murders is, oh, drug charges, we took them off. Now, we treat, this law treats a guy who's caught doing, you know, drug dealing with no prior record the same way as if he had murders. In other words, you could have been an axe murderer, but if you're you're let out because a lot of them really don't serve life or anywhere near life sentence. And then you're now picked up on a lower level crime. Typically, throughout our history, what 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 a judge would do is look at the history is like, look, this guy needs to be held. Now, it doesn't matter. You could have had the worst criminal history imaginable, but if on the crime you just committed, it doesn't qualify for um you know discretionary uh holding by the judge you're out so there's an endless litany of this nypd came out with data the murder rate is up eight percent this past year you can only imagine what it's going to be this year with the full implementation of the law and this is a big deal might not sound like a lot but when you go down and down and down since giuliani and then, then you start to go up in 2015, goes back down a little bit in 2017, and then goes up again. We, we've reversed the trend. And like I've said before, with technology, there's cameras everywhere. The police have unbelievable technology. Murder is murder. The technology of rote violent crime has not grown commensurate with the technology to identify and apprehend them. Just like the technology of medical care we should be able to permanently actualize those gains. Like I always say, 
if all of a sudden our life expectancy st starts sliding back, that's a serious problem, even though, well, it's still well ahead of where it was in 1905. Well, gee, yeah, of course. This is the big national crisis that no one's discussing. I've talked about this for five years, how quietly all of the states, and now the federal government, but all the states, including Oklahoma, including deep red states, have been working to reverse these trends. They're obsessing about, they're creating this premise that we lock up too many people for nonsense. And there's, there's too many people in prison. We need to release them at all costs. We need less aggressive policing. We need shorter sentencing. We need more pretrial release. We need more loopholes for them to get out of um, convictions based on, on technicalities. It's all these repeat offenders are now going to be out in the streets. So I have a litany of cases we, we list, just crazy stuff um, that's, that's going on as a result of this. Ronald Reagan said on April 8th, 1981, he signed a proclamation called National Crime Victims Week. It's still to this day, technically it's on the books. Every year in April, it's one week in April. And he recognized at the time for far too long, the victims of crime have been forgotten persons of our criminal justice system. Rarely do we give victims the help they need or the attention they deserve. Yet the protection of our citizens to guard them from becoming victims is the primary purpose of our penal laws. Thus, each new victim personally represents an instance in which our system has failed to prevent crime. Lack of concern for victims compounds that failure. President Trump ran on a platform just like Reagan. In fact, in his book, The America We Deserve, he wrote, the next time you hear someone saying that there are too many people in prison, ask them how many thugs they're willing to relocate to their neighborhoods. The answer is none. Sadly, the one action the president took, thanks to Jared Kushner, thanks to the Koch brothers from the Texas Public Policy Institute that he put into his policy shop in the White House, was a jailbreak bill. And I'm hearing that they're working on more. The president needs to be called out for this, and he needs to be prodded to be that voice. He needs to be that voice. If Reagan actually literally used the word bully pulpit in connection with crime, he used to say, look, it's mainly a state issue. We're going to work on the drugs and the, and the firearms, which they felt they can get at a federal level, and it worked. Reagan also, by the way, promised to deal with the exclusionary rule. That's the rule that basically lets them off on technicalities. Oh, I don't like how the cops got the evidence. Now, just because a cop got an evidence in the wrong way doesn't mean it throws out the conviction constitutionally. It doesn't. It's made up. The courts made that up. Unfortunately, that part of his vision was never actualized. Congress never agreed to pass that. Trump needs to push these things. Go through all the technicalities. 90% of people caught are never convicted commensurate with what they actually did. They all plead down because of all the technicalities of how hard it is to land a, a conviction. That is why it is so, that's why they serve so little time. And this is not just in, in, in New York, this is everywhere. It's certainly where I live. Baltimore City set a record, but you know, Baltimore County, where I live, 
the county side, set a record for homicide too last year. 85% increase in homicides from the previous year. We have robbery and theft everywhere, carjackings everywhere. And the thing is, most people don't even, they recognize that something's wrong, but they don't even know about these policies being passed. People are shocked. They're so egregious, people couldn't even imagine it. Yet Republicans have refused to say, you, you guys, Democrats, you, you just did what? You just voted to give criminals more leeway? Run a Willie Horton ads against them. No, instead, Republicans agree with them, which is why there's been no point of contention. There's been no fight about it because it's quietly a consensus among the elites that this is what we need to do. Heck, even Trump got bought into it. So that's why the people don't even know what's happening. They only know about something that's, you know, the subject of a robust debate. I want to read to you an article here that I think is really important from, um, from the New York Post. Just a terrific, terrific uh, article that demonstrates the potency of this issue. There is a tsunami coming in New York, and it will cross all political boundaries, crashing over differences of race, religion, class, and neighborhood. It will be a force few elected officials can withstand, and it will have the power to sweep away political careers on election night. This is um, Al D'Amato, former senator um, from New York, Republican, wrote this. I'm speaking of the public's pent-up revulsion at the so-called bail reform enacted by a progressive-dominated legislature. While proponents deliberately obscured it from public scrutiny during its draft, many elected officials, including mayors, judges, district attorneys, and law enforcers, voiced their concerns about this law and how it would be a catastrophic mistake. Among other things, the law is forcing judges to grant criminals early release by severely limiting their discretion in setting bail. It also grants criminal defendants with unprecedented discovery power to potentially cripple investigations and or intimidate victims and witnesses. And he goes through a lot of the stuff you and I have talked about. And I think it's a terrific point that even in New York, if you had a party that would run on law and order consistently, they would do good. You could imagine in red states where we have jailbreak policy. Imagine if on a federal level, Mitch McConnell would tomorrow bring legislation to the floor Closing all the loopholes the federal courts made. Because remember, although most criminal issues are state issues, it's the federal courts that have crippled state prosecutors from um, landing convictions in various cases because they phantomly created a federal constitutional right for various things for criminals. Congress needs to deal with that. That's what Reagan called for. He always called out those liberal judges. They could deal with the exclusionary rules. They could deal with gun felons, which has been federalized, whether you like it or not, but it's in the federal system. And increasing the mandatories for repeat gun felons. Let the Democrats who are yelping about gun violence vote against it. Catch them in the act. This is the vision we need. 
This is the vision we need against enemies, foreign and domestic. Why, am, why is this the only show really doing this? Drives me nuts. Again, people don't even know this is going on. Democrats could not, they could not sustain themselves through a protracted, relentless political fight over crime in all of the ways they have let out individual criminals, general criminals, and there's endless litany of cases that you could point to and use in, in political ads. The problem is Republicans agree to it. We haven't even talked about illegal immigration and all those cases. Un unbelievable, the stuff that, um, that has gone on there. Um, th this is from a little while ago, but the Federation for American Immigration Reform, maybe we'll go into this later this week. Early last year, they put out a whole report showing how illegal aliens commit a crime, crime at a much higher rate. And you know how they catch it? Because there's something called SCAP. It's an acronym, um, SCAP data, where basically SCAP is a program where the federal government reimburses localities for jailing. Um, it's called the State Criminal Alien Assistance Program for housing and jailing um, foreign nationals because that's a federal responsibility. So the, all these liberal states want to say, no, 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 illegal immigrants are very good people. They don't commit crimes. Oh, federal government, like, okay, we have this and this number of illegal aliens in our, in our prisons. Could you reimburse us? That is where we get them. That is where we get out the truth. And what they found, it's unbelievable. Um, they, they go state by state, state by state. They compare the incarceration rate of... of um, illegal aliens to that of citizens. And, um, and they come out, or citizens in LPR, so non-illegal aliens in California, the rate of incarceration is 0.482. Illegal aliens, one point, almost 1.6. Almost four times as much as likely as a percentage of per capita of their population to be in prison. Almost four times more likely in California. Unbelievable. Three times more likely in New York. So a good part of that crime bubble is going to, in, in a place like New York, that is a tremendous amount of illegal aliens. It's like a million illegal aliens in New York, at least. Guess what? A lot of the crimes coming from them. New Jersey. Wow, look at this. Roughly um, five to six times as much. Arizona. Man, tremendous, tremendous percentage there. And on and on. So you could look it up at, at Federation for Immigration Reform's website. Um, they did uh, about eight different states that they were able to get SCAP data. That's a big deal. And remember, remember something. What happens to American criminals after they serve jail time? Well, they're released. And increasingly, they're released very quickly and don't serve very long. Well, who does most of the crime? Well, repeat offenders. So they're going to go and commit more crimes, right? 
illegal aliens, what happens to them? They're deported. So meaning you would think over time we would have drained out a good amount of their most criminal element. And again, the more the worse of a criminal you are as an alien, the more likely you are to get deported. And still. There is this much more crime as a percentage of the share of the population among illegal aliens. You could you could imagine if we wouldn't be deporting them and we'd let them all back out. I mean, a lot of them do come back, but a lot of them are kept out. We remove them. We've deported millions of criminal aliens over the last decade. You can imagine if they would have been allowed to remain and have their criminal careers fester as American criminals do, how much more illegal alien crime we would have. It's an un this is an unbelievable point you're not going to hear elsewhere. And again, I mean, this is borne out by the fact that ICE told us last year that among those illegal aliens subject to detainers, that they you know, were arrested for crimes, there were 2,500 homicide charges among them. And like I said, we have only arrested about 9,000 known homicide offenders, you know, arrested for homicide in a given year, according to the FBI. What is that, like 27% there? Illegal aliens are only about 4.5% of the population. Now, some of it, like I said, it's... It does have legal immigrants mixed in that because they get detainers, too, at the back end. The majority of them, the bulk of them are from illegal immigrants. So maybe it's not, you know, illegal aliens being 4% of the population being responsible for 27% of the homicides, but it's certainly a lot more than their share of the population. Enemies, foreign and domestic, the right foreign policy. Doing the right things for the right reasons. From a position of strength, the right homeland policies. Sovereignty, going after sanctuary cities, and then domestic crime. These are all things Trump could be a voice throughout the, throughout the year. He could demand legislation on even if it doesn't pass. But this is your impetus for win winning an election and then actually fulfilling your promises. But that will only happen if we build a sustained movement on this. I didn't even get to refugees. We are way out of time here. Um, send me your comments, concerns, and questions, what you want us to cover here, what you feel is not being covered enough at dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at armconservative. Subscribe to our videos at our Conservative Review YouTube page. Till tomorrow, thank you for listening, and God bless.